0: you mm-hmm. Hello, everyone, and welcome
1: to the Tobolowski Files—a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry, as told by character actor Stephen Tobolowsky. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com and the host of the SlashFilm.com podcast, The Slash Filmcast. And joining me today is the man who played Jesco Rollins in the 2007 film Totally Baked—a pocumentary, <laughs> Stephen Tobolowsky.
2: <laughs> oh, Lord. And see, I was, I was planning on being very stoic with whatever you would say this time, but you got me with that one.
1: Yes. Lee Evans. You got me
2: with Totally Baked. Totally yeah.
1: Baked. Uh, which, by the way, I have no idea what this movie is about, but it's called a potumentary, so as in documentary. Yeah, it, was, but. It,
2: it was a favor I, I did for a friend of mine who was casting it, and he, and he wanted me to be in it. And I bet, But i got to say that that particular performance of what Roscoe Jenkins uh roscoe jesco rollins jesco rollins (laughs) that particular performance really uh drew me closer to the hearts of all of my uh all the teenage kids that smoked pot at my son's school
1: well that's that's nice uh yeah i got a whole following
2: there Excellent.
1: Excellent. Well, you know, speaking of getting closer to people's hearts, Stephen, you know, we were talking before the show about how uh, people often write about you uh, without knowing that you're on the Internet and watching them all the time. Right. Because you have something called a Google alert going for your name.
2: Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, not too long ago, I did see a Google alert for the potumentary, too. I I put a Google alert on on my name, Stephen Tobolowsky. So anything that comes up on the Internet that has to do with Stephen Tobolowsky, I get to read it. And it's a little bit like what Anton Chekhov would call the portrait of a uh, deterioration. In that I can see all of the movies that I've been in one by one now being kind of passed back and forth on the internet for free. And whereas at one point in time, an actor could count on making revenue through residuals. Now I can see, at first it was like little films like the Sasquatch Dumpling Gang and the Popumentary, And now it's stuff like Groundhog's Day and Memento that people are trading these films for free on the internet and, I don't have the name of the Greek philosopher. There was a Greek philosopher who uh, – I think he was the same guy who came up with the theory of atoms. And this is pre-Socratic. This is a long time ago. And he said that nothing really exists in and of itself, but everything is in a constant state of flux, of change, of chaos. And uh, it it was comforting if if you're in a bad situation, like you told me this morning, you were in a kind of a, you were tired and in a kind of tired mood. In a way, that's good news because that means that things will inevitably get better. And then, like my uh, Google alerts, it's also bad news because I can see that what used to be my livelihood now is is gone, and I'm like one of those dinosaurs sinking in the La Brea tar pits. But I, I, Oh, now i depressed myself. Oh, David, see what you've done to me. But, but uh, I, I was thinking a lot about chaos, especially with the holidays and everything happening and how chaos is such an element of the holidays. And I recognize it has to do with a very big facet of all of our lives in that I always wanted to be in love. As long as I could remember, I always wanted to be married and have a family, and, and I don't really know why. I, I don't think it was because that I had some sort of ideal home life growing up. I think it was more likely that I was born a traditionalist. Either that or I saw just too many Jimmy Stewart movies when I was little. But I still remember my first marriage proposal. I was five And I climbed up the mimosa tree in our front yard And I picked some of those pink mimosa blossoms And I ran over to Alice Nell Allen's house And she was a very pretty girl who lived down the street And she was also five She had long brown hair And on occasion she wore a yellow blouse with wildflowers on it I I had learned at some point later That I had actually misunderstood her name The entire time I knew her Instead of Alice Nell I thought her mother was calling her Alice Snail And I love snails So this was actually a big plus for me So when I ran over to her house with the mimosa flowers I gave them to her I asked her to marry me She said yes I kissed her on the cheek And then I I still remember how warm and soft that cheek was I ran home at full speed to tell mom Who was at the sink washing up something for dinner And even though I'm a thousand years old now I still remember this conversation Like it happened five minutes ago I said, mom, I want you to know I just asked Dallas Snail to marry me And mom said, oh, that's nice <laughs> And I told her, so I guess I'm going to be moving out and marrying her And mom said, that's nice, honey I knew from the movies that kissing a girl would be a very important thing for me to learn So at night, I would occasionally practice on my pillow. And it didn't feel anything like Alice Snail's cheek So I needed to move up to something that was a little more girl-like So I switched to the stuffed rabbit I had in my bed It was missing an eye and an ear because I used to punch it all the time When I felt like I just had to hit something In fact, it was called Punching Bunny by everybody in my family But it did have a mouth of sorts So it was a step up from the pillow And now that I think about it, it was actually a pretty good template for working on an abusive relationship. You know, punched all day, kissed all night. But that was about all the preparation I had for the world of women. And I was lucky that the person I fell in love with in college was Beth, because she seemed to have as little preparation for a relationship as I. Years of kissing bunnies and pillows could not have prepared me for Beth now, perhaps a conversation with Stephen Hawking on the nature and behavior of unstable atomic particles could have helped if I could have understood it. But in short, Beth was nothing like Grace Kelly or Donna Reed. In appearance, Beth conveyed a kind of a mismatch of several different mythologies. She wore blue jeans with a mini skirt over them. Occasionally, she would wear long underwear to class as a kind of fashion statement. She was modest, but she would model nude for the art classes She was shy and small physically, but on occasion and without warning She would beat me up with her purse and throw me into a hedge She was a force of chaos Which could be destructive or inspirational As I said, I was a traditionalist My life had always been structured I was in bed by 8 o'clock when I was a child I always did my homework I always had good grades I always went to Sunday school and later to saturday school and later to saturday and sunday school and i believed it all beth was a different animal altogether i remember once she and i were sitting in the lobby of her dorm and i just played snow song this was a song i had written for her and it was a constant request and she asked me what i wanted in life and i said a home and she looked at me as if I had just said something in Farsi. She goes, what's that? I, I said, well, it's having a wife and children and four walls and maybe even a fireplace. I think I just heard that Crosby, still Nash and Young song, you know, our house. But I said, it could be anywhere. It's just a place that's warm and safe. And Beth looked away and her eyes became very dark and she seemed to stare at some invisible specter in the corner of the room. And she said, that doesn't exist There's no place like that There's no place that's safe I said, don't you think a place can be safe if two people love each other? No, she said Because how do you know if you're really in love? How do you know you won't just wake up one morning and want to pack up and leave? That's why I'm never going to marry you Because I want us to be free to leave each other whenever we want And there it was The portrait of the unimaginable distance between two people Now I was too young to know it then But I've since learned that there are gaps that can never be bridged Even with good intentions Ralph Waldo Emerson once said That what you are thunders so loud I cannot hear what you say Nothing can be truer, especially if you're dealing with relationships Dating, maybe, can be defined by the things you say But when you cross the line into a relationship, everything is defined by the things you do And what you do is often determined by what you hold as the center of your life I may have been clinging to a phony vision of life that I gleaned from Broadway musicals and the Dick and Jane series we read in first grade And that had its dangers For example, you have the risk of worshiping a form at the expense of content. But Beth held on to an equally dangerous model. She embraced the storm. Or even worse, the eye of the storm. The appearance of calm with the promise of disaster. Chaos as an inspiration led Beth in college to suggest that she wanted to get away. She wanted to get away from it all as long as the trip wasn't planned. And that wish became a series of trips that I could have turned into a coffee table book entitled Insignificant Texas, a tour of the townships within a 300-mile radius of Dallas. We would go to the Greyhound station on Saturday, pick a town at random, buy bus tickets, and go there for the day, and then come home on Sunday. This was not based on the Texas expression of going nowhere fast. It was more like going nowhere slow. We would go somewhere we never heard of. We would walk around. We would eat at a diner, talk to people, spend a night in a motel with no sex. And, yes, eventually, yeah, 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 we did have sex. It was like any other sex. It was wonderful and traumatic, and I'm still recovering from it. But that has no consequence in this story, so we go back to the topic at hand. Occasionally, there were dramatic events that happened on our trips. Once, I bought a partial set of encyclopedia for $10. Once we got married in a field during a thunderstorm By ourselves, of course Nothing legal or binding The forces of chaos would never approve of that And sometimes the universe would throw us a curveball On our way home from Mount Vernon, Texas The bus broke down About two and a half hours outside of Dallas And the driver told us that another bus Would have to come all the way out from Dallas Then take us home And we could plan on being out here on the road For at least another six hours well that was just way too much of a commitment for Beth and I Two people who shared nothing but the common passage of time So we left the bus and we decided to hitchhike home I had never hitchhiked before And every fiber in my being was in revolt But I said nothing We walked away from the down bus We held out our thumbs There was not much traffic, and I realized we were heading on a course of action that could end up being unimaginably disastrous if no one picked us up. I felt like we had just jumped off an ocean liner hoping to catch a ride on a dolphin. Just as I was beginning to want to head back to the safety of the Greyhound, a beat-up red van pulled off the shoulder of the highway, and the side door slid open, and Beth and I ran over, and we jumped inside the van, and I slammed the door shut, and immediately I noticed we were in a van full of black people. A man and a woman were in the front seat. We were in the back. There was an old woman, two small children. I said, hey. There was no response. I continued, well, I hope you're headed for Dallas because that's where we're heading. Thanks for stopping. The man driving didn't say a word. He just looked at me in the rearview mirror. He started the engine. I repeated, You are going to Dallas, aren't you? He just looked at me in the rearview. He put the car into gear, and off we went. I watched the bus getting smaller and smaller out the back window And I thought about how clever we were to have taken this course of action And I started talking to the people in the van The old woman put her hand out of one of the children to quiet any urge to speak Silence No one looked at me No one looked at Beth It was very tense And now I was wondering how this ride was going to end Around sundown The van pulled off the road around the outskirts of Dallas. The man driving looked at me and said, we're not going any further. You have to get out of here. I nodded. I opened the van door, actually relieved to be getting out safely. And I said, hey, man, thanks for the lift. I was afraid no one would pick up hitchhikers anymore. The man turned around to me. He said, what? You were hitchhiking? We never even saw you. We had just pulled over to change drivers. You jumped in the car and said, drive us to Dallas. We thought you were kidnappers. Identity confusion can be a dangerous side effect of the chaos-centered life. For people who never made plans, it was odd that Beth and I forged a relationship that always seemed to involve travel. One of our biggest adventures was that we decided to go to Boulder, Colorado, because Beth liked the name. Well, that fell through. And then we changed gears and thought a trip to London and Paris sounded like a good idea. That didn't fall through. We bought plane tickets and U-Rail passes and details like hotels, theater tickets, ground transportation. Nah, we just decided to leave those things up to the universe. We had no idea what to take, so we took everything. We needed Sherpas to get to the plane. Beth's green suitcase had to weigh 400 pounds. She couldn't carry it. Now, the gentlemanly thing to have done would be to tell her straight out, hey, you pack what you could carry. But I learned everything I knew about life from The Andy Griffith Show. So I asked myself, what would Andy do for Aunt B? I I ended up carrying Beth's suitcase and mine the entire trip. I developed a posture for slogging around the two massive pieces of luggage that in hindsight was very reminiscent of the World's Strongest Man competition on TV. With knees bent and straight arms from a distance, I could have been mistaken for an orangutan. We arrived in London and we had no idea where to go So we took a subway to the Paddington stop Where a friend of ours told us he got a hotel We got out and we walked up and down the street Beth holding her pillow from home Me grunting with the two huge suitcases Till we found a hotel aptly named The Nomad The manager wanted to get paid in advance As I was shelling out the pounds He told me that there was one bathroom at the end of each floor I stopped I assumed, being in England, we were still a part of what was considered the civilized world. I told him that we would need a private toilet. He sneered and said, hey, that's not very romantic. I said, regardless of the romance, we want our own bathroom. He said, that'll cost you extra. So we paid the extra money. And we ended up with a single bedroom that connected to something in the corner that resembled a ride at the fair. You (laughs) you walked up three tiny steps— To a little room You shut the door It would have been nice If there had been seat belts To flush You pull a piece of bicycle chain That was connected to a tank That somehow diverted The entire Thames River Into the potty for eight seconds The floor shook The roar was deafening The sheer mass of water Was spectacular And reminiscent of Niagara On the Canadian side Traditional science and by that I mean Newtonian science Based a lot of its principles on the foundation that objects and forces seek equilibrium they, they try to keep everything in balance But new scientific thinking has chucked all that And embraces non-linear systems and is called the science of becoming The focus of these experiments is not on balance at all But is on something called spontaneous ordering and the emergence of novelty That was us We were the new scientists If there was an opportunity in London To go to the theater We took it We ended up seeing 10 plays in a week Including seeing the great Lawrence Olivier Joan Plowright Frank Finlay Paul Schofield John Gielgud As well as a young Michael Crawford And Michael Gambon It was amazing And we did this all by just walking up And getting cancellations Or whatever was available Every place in London Became an opportunity If the doors were open We walked in We saw pictures of T.E. Lawrence and George Bernard Shaw at the National Portrait Gallery We ate something called American pancakes at a British breakfast house It was to food like nightmare is to dream It was a stack of flapjacks covered by a steak Covered by potatoes and brown gravy I asked our waitress if I could just have the pancakes with butter and syrup She looked at me like I just showed her my fresh appendectomy scar We went to the Tate Gallery and saw the amazing painting of Hope And for those who don't know it, it portrays a blind woman sitting alone in a desolate world Plucking the string of a harp Beth stared at this picture for a long time In hindsight, perhaps, it revealed the magnetic power of the familiar we had 33 minutes. We ran into the British Museum, and there, by chance, before us was the Rosetta Stone, a very fitting artifact of two people trying to understand the common meaning in the indecipherable. And uh, just as the chaos theory giveth, it also taketh away. A few days later, we used our U rail passes to go to Paris. We arrived not knowing we already had two strikes against us. One, we were in France, where they didn't speak English, and two, we were in France When we got to the train station in Paris We were directed to go to a window Called passport authority Now th- this was just like in the movies Where they had men with guns Who checked your papers And asked you the question Where do you plan on staying When you're in Paris And when you answer that question I don't know I figured we'd just walk around With the two huge suitcases till we found a place with a the bathroom They don't like that answer when you live the chaos-centered life, they make you stand for hours in a long line at the train station and have a room assigned to you. We were given a slip of paper that had an address and directions. I gave that slip of paper to a German cab driver who didn't understand any English, but I did notice he had a black leather jacket on, so it enabled me to use one of the two sentences I knew in German, Ich muss mir eine Neue Jacke kaufen. Which meant I need to buy a new jacket Yeah, he looked at me in the rearview mirror with a certain amount of confusion And we continued on to our destination We got out, I grabbed the two huge suitcases and started slogging back up the block to our hotel On the way I noticed, I was receiving many a-fetching looks from all the women in our neighborhood At first I thought maybe it was the suitcases that had sent out a silent message as to my virility Then I figured maybe it's the Russian good looks Finally it dawned on me that we were in the middle of a red light district and These were all prostitutes and our hotel was actually a brothel with a spare room With my English I tried to explain to the madam that we were not renting our room by the hour and we had been assigned to go to her hotel by the police, and she disliked us at first glance, and that was as good as our relationship ever got. But we didn't spend too much time in the room. We were out on the town. We went to the Louvre and saw the Mona Lisa. We saw The Marriage of Figaro in the dark at the Paris Opera. We went to the Shakespeare and Sons bookstore. We rode on the bateau bus up and down the river, saying, One night, we went to the Moulin Rouge. That's a famous nightclub where they feature a variety of dance routines with topless women interspersed with jugglers and dog acts you would have seen on The Ed Sullivan Show. To get in, you had to buy one of three ticket packages, and Beth and I, of course, we got the cheapest, which was basically the show, and a bottle of champagne. And they seated us at a table with another American couple This was a middle-aged married couple from Vermont Who had ordered the most expensive package That included a full seven-course dinner And the show And it was referred to as the French feast They served their soup The couple felt guilty for eating in front of us And we told them not to worry And the wife Marion was in the middle of an apology Even to the point of offering us a taste When her husband George muttered Oh no And a torn blood blasted out of his nose Into his soup (laughs) He politely noted That he was afraid this may happen And he excused himself from the table He ran to the men's room with a handkerchief Pressed up against his nose Marion continued calmly George has a problem with his nose Beth and I looked at each other Feeling that the events of the past 30 seconds Spoke for themselves and required no further comment from us The waiter removed George's soup And replaced it with his salad Marian asked what we were doing in Paris, and we told the story, and she was inspired about how romantic it all sounded, taking off on a whim with no job, no money, no preparations. Marian mentioned that the world would be a better place if people were just a little more impulsive and not so calculating. The waiters removed George's untouched salad and brought his fish plate. George returned from the men's room with wads of toilet paper jammed up his nostrils. He smiled sheepishly and apologized saying that he was hoping for a quiet evening with his nose He chuckled and added that he guessed that wasn't in the cards (laughs) He picked up his knife and fork He started cutting into his fish and he gave out another little groan and a sort of a hard sneeze Blasting the toilet paper wads into my lap And spraying his fillet of fish and the table in a shower of blood George gritted his teeth and grinned Oops, here we go again. I started mopping up my side of the table with a sort of nonchalant, no problem, no problem at all, and George ran back to the men's room. Marion didn't bat an eyelash. She continued, So, what do you two study in college? Theater, we answered, and the dance orchestra started up with an Edith Piaf tango, and Marion asked Beth if it'd be all right if she borrowed me for a dance. Beth Thought this was perfectly fine And I'm sure entertaining Because Beth knew I couldn't dance at all I got up and faked it As George came back from the men's room He saw his wife and I sort of dancing A foxtrot cha-cha to the tango music And was inspired to offer his hand to Beth Now I found this absolutely delightful Because I knew that Beth really couldn't dance Plus there was the added suspense Of dancing with George We all danced together at the Moulin Rouge Beth shot a look to me Then a look up to the wads of tissue up George's nose The suspense was killing The song ended We got back to the table just in time for the meat course in George's next hemorrhage He ran from the table Never to have touched a bite of his seven-course French feast And never to be seen again And we'll just call it Moulin Rouge As shot by Quentin Tarantino That evening we returned to find our luggage in the hallway The madam in charge of the hotel explained that we were being thrown out of our room because, quote, I punched a toilet with my fist and smashed it. Now, I don't know how many times you have felt the need to punch a toilet. I never have. But then again, I had the punching bunny. My French was not sufficient to answer such a charge except with the five reporter questions, how, when, what, where, and why. Why? The madam assured me that my punching of the toilet was witnessed by the maid, which led me to my own conclusions. But the bottom line was we were thrown out onto the street. One of the advantages of the chaos theory is that it doesn't look at events like this as negatives. They just provide more chaos for the engine to operate on. So we jumped on a train and we headed for Versailles, where we spent a couple lovely days and then decided to head back to England. Now, this was the plan. The plan was we were going to take the train to the port town of Calais, then a ferry across the English Channel, and then a train back to London. And believe it or not, there was no longer room in my massive suitcase for my two Pierre Cardin suits to fit without getting crushed, so I thought they would travel better if I wore them both. So, wearing two suits and slogging along with both suitcases, we boarded our train to Calais. As holder of a U-Rail pass, you get prepaid first-class travel anywhere in Europe. Unless, of course, you lose the u pass, then whoever finds it gets free first-class travel anywhere in Europe. We had settled into our first-class seats when Beth whispered to me that she had lost her pass, and she had no idea where it was. I saw the conductor coming down the aisle, and I told her, go back to the bathroom. I would show the conductor my pass and tell him that you had the same. Well, that didn't work The conductor said he would wait for Beth to come back to her seat So I excused myself saying, well, I'll tell you what I'll just go and get her I got her out of the bathroom And we moved casually into the second class cabin That worked for about five minutes And then I saw the conductor headed our way So we strolled back to the third class cabin Now, third class was jammed with humanity There were no seats It was sweltering And in my two Pierre Cardin suits, I started to sweat So we walked back to the club car and ordered lunch. We sat there as long as we could, and then the waiter told us we would have to get up and leave to let others come and sit and eat. We headed back into the train, and then I saw the conductor making his way to the club car. So Beth and I had to keep heading back. We walked back through the kitchen and out the back door. Now we were sitting outside of the train on the iron couplings that held the passenger section to the baggage cars. Just when I started to feel sorry for myself, possessing a first-class ticket, but having to ride outside of the dining car of a speeding train in two Pierre Cardin suits, the busboy opened the back door, muttered a curse in French, and threw a bucket of food scraps on me. I was in shock. I didn't know what to do. And just when I started to feel sorry for myself riding outside of the dining car of a fast-moving train wearing two Pierre Cardin suits covered in food scraps, it started to rain. The wet wool mixed with the partly eaten potatoes of gratin made me snap. I yelled at Beth, "We have to get out of the rain, and the only way back was into the baggage compartment." Now, riding in the baggage compartment of a rapidly moving train is a lot like riding on the freeway in the back of a pickup truck with a lawnmower and a pit bull. Besides being thrown from one end of a metal car to another, you also have heavy bags being thrown at you, on you, with you, under you, around you, and all the time you know you have a first-class ticket in your pocket. I arrived at the port of Calais. I stumbled out of the baggage car looking like a tossed cob salad. I made it to the ferry to take us across the English Channel, and that's where I met Michael. I'll never forget him. He was a young German art student who told me he was on his way to New York to see the art galleries right before he got seasick and threw up on me. In my life, I have encountered genuine disgust. And I know the look in the eyes. I know it from the look of my anti-Semitic classmates in fifth grade. And I know the look of kindergarten teachers when in Twelfth Night Repertory Company I had unknowingly tossed off sexually explicit comments in Spanish to a group of children. My bad. I know it from the look of an East German border guard pushing me up against the wall with his machine gun as I tried to cross into Berlin in 1970. That's another story. But nothing tops the looks I got that day. Getting off of the boat, wearing two wet wool suits, covered with food and vomit, shuffling down the boat dock, groaning under the weight of the two gigantic suitcases. I've often been told that there are two ways of viewing existence— One is that we live in a world of cause and effect, and the other is that we live in a world of probability. But I had discovered a third. Living with Beth, you could also live in a world of possibility, where there were no rules at all, except gravity, and we were working on that one.
0: Il est pas de dans mon cœur, de bon âge, je la
1: That was Chaos Theory, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, that was some pretty crazy recording back there. Uh, (laughs) People at home hopefully won't hear this, but uh, Stephen actually uh, had, I would say, about 50 takes of that story before we finally nailed it down correctly.
2: (laughs) You you know, there were, you know, it's... It is when you tell the, per- the story in the third person, which I've been doing all week practicing this thing, that it's okay. But when you tell the story in the first person and you suddenly, your brain goes back there and I was on that train in those two suits and that stuff happening to me, I couldn't contain myself and I became a Dick Clark walking uh, blooper, bad take kind of. It was I, my apologies, David. That's going to be terrible. <laughs> it's
1: all good. It's all good. Well, in any case, Stephen, if people want to share their stories with you or just tell you what they think of the show, how can they contact you this week?
2: They can contact me. Uh, it'd be great if you wrote me an email. I've gotten so many great ideas of stories from the emails, and that's at Stephen StephenToboloski at com, and that is E P H E N. T is in Tom, O B as in boy, O L O W S K Y at gmail.com. And also, David, you know, uh, I'm at Twitter now at to- Tobolowski. David, what, where, where am I at there? Twitter.com slash Tobolowski. Okay, see, I was going to go Tobolowski slash Twitter.com, but it's Twitter.com slash Tobolowski.
1: Exactly correct. And you can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. You can also email me at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. And you can find my other podcast at slash filmcast.com. Of course, you can always find The Tobolowski Files on iTunes. And you can download every single episode of The Tobolowski Files uh, by going to com. So that's going to bring us to the end of this episode of the Tobolaski Files. Thanks for joining us this week uh, for a pretty entertaining story, and for all the people in the chat room who are listening in live as we uh, fumbled through that. Thank, thanks, guys, for tuning in. We appreciate it. We'll see you guys next week. Talk to you guys later.
2: Bye bye. <laughs>
0: Voilà la vie en ronde il m'a dit des mots d'amour des mots de tous les jours et ça me fait quelque chose il est entré dans mon il une part de bonheur dont je connais la cause c'est toi (laughs) You. <laughs>